what makes a difference when you see your contemporaries and you witness them. And there's just something different about you compared to what they are with them. What's the difference? I'm created from the same stuff they're created from. Just as wicked in my thoughts and imaginations as what they are. My heart is evil. But there's still something different. And I'm glad there is, bless the Lord. I'm glad I don't feel at home in this world. Glad I don't feel like I belong here. Sometimes it may go against our flesh and our grain at the time that it's taking place. When you have time to separate yourself and to reflect and to think back, you got to say the only difference is, is I've made a trip by Calvary. And that touch that happened at Calvary saved a sinner like me. But bless the Lord. I'm glad to be a child of the Lord today. Matthew chapter number 9 this morning. Matthew chapter number 9. We're going to begin to read this one on verse number 27. Matthew chapter number 9. And begin to read with verse number 27. You find your place. If you would, if you stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Read down through verse 31. Try to preach a message that we feel like the Lord would be pleased with this morning. Matthew chapter number 9, beginning to read with verse number 27. The Bible said, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. When he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man knoweth. And they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Father, thank you for the privilege to have a Bible. Thank you, God, for visiting with us already this morning. God, give us tender hearts today. Help us, God, as we stand to preach what you would have us to God, would you take over? Would you take direction? Would you take, give direction? Would you help us, Lord, that we could be very sensitive into the Spirit of God today? Lord, bring us back to where we used to be, I pray. Help us, Lord, that we stand and give an account of ourselves this day before you. Lord, with your word that will be preached. I pray, God, especially for those that may not be saved this morning. God, help them today that they could believe and be saved. Bless our church. Bless those that said to pray for me. So many, God, that have requests of prayer, those that are not here, 
pray, Lord, you'd bless them, those that would love to be here but are unable to. God, you help each of them as well. God, I pray you'd help me now to preach because I need you. I need your touch. If you don't help me, God, it'd be in vain. And I ask you for help today. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you and be seated. We have read this morning in the account, in the in this ninth chapter of the book of Matthew, we find that Jesus has an encounter with some blind men. And it's very intriguing when you read the entire story, read the entire account. It'd be good for you to go back and, and pick up and and uh, we find all the things that Jesus done in this chapter. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. And everywhere he went, his fame was being spread abroad. People were taking notice of the Lord Jesus. And why was that? Well, because the Jews sought a sign. That's what the scripture says. The Jews seek a sign. We don't work in signs and wonders anymore. We got the holy word of God. I'm glad of that. We don't have to have signs and wonders. But the Jews today still seek a sign they still do and and Jesus as he went 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 around he was doing these wonderful miracles and 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 as he he went to different places the Bible would say and the fame uh, went abroad in the awe of that land and and uh, then we find in verse number 27 that that Jesus had departed from where he was when he had the woman with the issue of blood and the Bible said two blind men followed him in other words that I take it that most two blind men must have saw what happened to the woman with the issue of blood, or they must have heard what had, what had happened to the man with the issue of blood, or to the woman with the issue of blood. They must have had an account that was given to them. Somebody must have whispered in their ear, you would never believe what just happened to this woman. And what happened to her? Well, the, this man named Jesus just passed by. I, I don't know how they followed you ever thought about that for a minute? I, I, I don't know how they followed, but the Bible said that they followed him. Notice what he said. And Jesus departed thence, and two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Uh, now, the, what they, there was probably a crowd of people thronging, and, and maybe what they were doing was following the noise uh, that was going before them. They may have been listening and, and hearing uh, of what the, the noise that was before them and them talking about Jesus because the fame of him was so important. The Bible said that when Jesus uh, came to a place, when verse 28, it said when he was coming to his house, into the house, the blind men came to him. In other words, they made it to where he was. And Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. Now, they had been crying all the way there. They had been begging all the way there. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, now, I wonder how many times they said those words, Brother Joe. I don't know how long the journey was. I don't know how far they traveled. But for a while, they would cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. I would imagine that Jesus, we know him being God, he knew their condition to begin with. But he also probably seen them trying to feel their way and trying to get uh, the direction, maybe uh, having obstacles placed before them. They may have tripped and fallen several times and may have run into things that, 
that they were not able to see. But still the same, they made it to where he was. And the question was asked unto them, do you think that I'm able to do this? The Bible said that they answered and said unto him, Yea, Lord. Well, why did they say that? What answer? What, why did they give that answer, Yea, Lord? Well, they had just heard that back in a, a few miles away, a woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years, that had spent all that she ever had, that she had just been made whole by just touching the hem of his garment. That that stench in her blood, that, 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 that problem that she had, the Bible said it was dried up when, uh, when the, that, that had taken place. And, and it wasn't that the touch of the Lord Jesus had healed her. But if you'll notice the scripture, it said that according to her faith, because of your faith, Notice in verse number 29, the Bible said, Then touched he their eyes, saying, Notice this, According to your faith, be it unto you. According to your faith, be it unto you. Those are such, astound that's such an astounding statement right there. There's a lot to those few words, if you'll let it sink in just a few minutes. According to your faith, be it unto you. If we could say one thing of assurance, it would be this, that, that God desires to answer our prayers. I believe that with every fiber of my being. I believe my Father wants what's best for me. I've got a son in, in seminary in Mississippi right now. I've got a daughter down in the kill down there. And I can promise you this. I want what's best for them. I, I, don't may, I may not know what it is at this very moment, but I want what's best for them. Why? Because I'm their father. I don't wish no evil and no hurt, no bad upon them. But I want what's best for them. And if I would want that for my, my children, what do you think God wants for his children? If I could for a few minutes this morning, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of the reason for unanswered prayer. The reason for unanswered prayer. And really, I don't know that you could say that there's such a thing as an unanswered prayer as much as there is as, as there, sometimes that the qualifications of prayer are not met. And there are qualifications of prayer being answered. They are conditions that need to be met according to the scripture. If you want to have your prayers answered, there are conditions that need to be taken care of. The Bible said in Psalm 66 and verse 18, the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we know that, that, that by that that, that, that if I harbor up sin and it's unconfessed and it's, uh, it's uh, uh, allowed to build up, and let's face it, there's times in our life that we would, uh, we would entertain and allow those things to build up within us, 
And if I do that, then the Bible said that, that the Lord will not hear me. One thing we know is that in order to have, have our prayers answered, we need righteousness, don't we? We need righteousness. First of all, we need the imputed righteousness of the Heavenly Father. In other words, uh, that we need to be born again. Amen. Uh, we need to be saved. Only prayer that God hears of a lost person, and I, I've not preached this in a long time on this, and I've not mentioned it, but, but there, today you hear so many lost people talking about how God hears the prayer and, and how God answers the prayer. I'm going to tell you all God does to you if you're lost is show you mercy. All he does is give you mercy. He's not answering your prayer because you're not his child. And he does not hear from you. He does not hear you. There, there is a barrier placed there. And, and uh, there's something that's missing with you. You see, so there is that imputed righteousness that's needed. Not only is there imputed righteousness needed, uh, but there is personal righteousness that's needed. What do you mean by that? There needs to be a desire to do the will of God. Amen. I know where we're preaching at. I know who we are, and I know what century we're living in, and I know what times we're living in, and this, this type of preaching uh, maybe is not popular anymore, uh, but I'm telling you, we better stick with what the Bible says. Uh, we better hold on with, to what thus saith the Word of God and know this, uh, uh, that God expects His children to live righteously. He expects us to do the right things and to say the right thing and to be the right way. We cannot live like the world and talk like the world and, and do everything the world does and expect God to be pleased with our lives. This morning I want to look at the reason for unanswered prayer. We're going, we're going to look at seven other factors, if you will, of unanswered prayer. Seven other factors of unanswered prayer. Psalm 126 in verse number 5 says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. This is the, the law, but this scripture is known as the law of spiritual harvest of harvesting, being able to have a spiritual harvest. And, and you say, preacher, what is it? Well, the first thing that we're talking about is brokenness. And today, uh, you know, we live in a, in a, in a society anymore that, that we, want a, uh, we want a harvest without the brokenness. We want to have a harvest without, without having the broken heart. We, wanna, we want God to bless and we want God to, to move and we want God to honor and we want God to build the church and we don't want to be broken anymore. And friend, I'm just going to tell you that those things don't work. If you look throughout the centuries at every revival that ever take, took place, there was an amount, there was a desire, there was a brokenness among the people of God that would cause that, uh, the attention of God to be gathered upon a certain place. And, and brother, if there's ever a time, if there's ever a place that needs the attention of God, we need the attention of God this morning. Uh, we need God to look down upon us from on high. We need God to change our lives. We need God to break our hearts. Uh, we need God to touch us deep within. I'm telling you, we need God to be a change in us. Uh, uh, some of you hadn't been changed in a long time. Uh, some of us hadn't been changed uh, in a long time. Time. And the life of a Christian is that uh, that we're 
we're continually changing. We're continually growing. We're continually putting things away that need to be put away. We're continually doing things that need to be done that we fail to do. But yet what we've done in our lives is that we've done the same things over and over and we're expecting different results and that is insanity. That is insanity. Now listen to me today, and I'm not trying to be mean. Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said, God does not answer many prayers. Uh, they are too uh, locked up in self-pity and aimed at personal benefits. Would you think about that just a moment? Uh, there's many of our prayers uh, that are locked up in self-pity and are gained or are put uh, to our personal benefit. When we come to the place where we can pray and we can have a desire, and it's not to benefit us, but it's to benefit the kingdom of God and the cause of Christ. When we get him in the king's seat, again, when we get him as being the centerpiece of our life, God begins to hear our prayer. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, one day received a letter from one of his captains. He was asking, he was in a drought in the place where he was, and they were, I mean a spiritual drought. They were, he was asking why their services had gotten so unspiritual. And he, he wanted, a, a, wanted a response back from, from Brother William Booth. They said Brother William Booth took and tore off a corner of a piece of paper, took his pen and wrote two words on it, put it in that envelope, sealed it up, and said, take it to him. When the, boy, when the, when the young man got the, 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 the note back from Brother Booth, he opened it up, he pulled the piece of paper out, and he read the piece of paper, which was about like that, and it said, try tears. Try tears. Can I ask you a question? Have you been broken? How long has it been? How long has it been since you've been broken and you go to God? You ask God in brokenness for help? We, we're fearful today to be broken anymore. But God's always used broken things. Gideon's army could not be victorious until the pitcher was broken and the light shined forth. Then the armies of the enemy fled from the 300. Why? When what took place? Something had to be broken before. God help us as children of God that we'd understand that there's a need for us to be broken. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. There is that harvest, that spiritual harvest, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Go read the rest of the song, sowing the seeds. Go read about how they're sown. We need brokenness today. Can I ask you, when's the last time you were broken to the point that you crawled up to an altar? Or you crawled to a prayer bench? Or you crawled to your secret place? 
in your heart you couldn't say, you could, in your mouth you couldn't form a word to say unto God. All you words was you crying out to a God of heaven. And there's one thing about the Spirit of God that makes intercession for us with groanings which no man can utter. Uh, that, 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 that Spirit of God can look into our hearts and can connect our hearts to the throne room of God and somehow or another uh, that God gets it. And, and there's relief that it's found there. When's the last time that we become broken as a church? Brokenness. Or the lack thereof is a reason today for unanswered prayer. Number two, travail. Travail. Y'all know what travail is. Travail is excruciating pain and agony. Psalm 166 in verse number 8 says this. It says, um, Isaiah 66 in verse number 8 says this. As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. I was in the room when both of my children were born. And before those children came into view, before we could touch them and love them in our arms, and kissed them on their heads. There was some travail that she went through. Without that travail, there was no birth. Without that travail, there wasn't any joy that was going to come. But as soon as she travailed, sometimes... I've heard ladies describe that point as they thought they were dying. They thought they were dying. But then all of a sudden, the relief came. You'd ask most ladies during childbirth, will you ever have another child? When the travails, because they'd look at you and tell you how stupid you was. And tell you how, how big of an idiot you were during a childbirth. But then when that ease came and they saw what God had caused to be born, they forgot all the pain, all the agony. And another question may be, not maybe when, when, when would you ever have another one, but look what God has given you see, what travail is, is agonizing. And, and I wonder today, have you ever agonized in prayer? In Luke 22, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, we find that Jesus began to be, the Bible said, in agony. Now, I'm not telling you that any of us have ever gotten to the place where Jesus were, and neither will we ever get to that place maybe uh, because uh, oh, there, uh, even though we told our sin and we carry our sin at times, uh, 
Uh, it's already been paid for on the cross, and, and Jesus is the one that carried it there and had it paid for. But, uh, but the Bible described Jesus in that time that, that in an agony his sweat became as, uh, as great drops of blood. Uh, John praying hide, uh, a missionary to India, uh, gave his life praying for the souls to be saved. And he would pray and he would beg God and he would ask God, God, please say. And when he got there, he began to ask God. He said, God, uh, for one year, uh, will you give me one soul a day? When he got to the end of that year, he had won 400 people to the Lord. The next year, he asked again. He said, Lord, I'm going I'm to go. He kind of faith promising it, okay? He said, God, will you give me uh, two souls a day? At the end of that year, he had won over 800 people to the Lord. In the third year, not in the year 1910, he prayed unto God, and he said, God, give me four souls a day. God granted his request. And toward the end of his life, or in that year, he went to his health began to fail him, and the doctor was said uh, told him that his heart was in an awful, awful condition, and uh, the only thing that could cause a man's heart to shift from one side to the other was uh, was extreme stress that he was under, and and uh, the only stress he had been under was the agony of praying for for folks that he could win to the Lord. Oh, friend, today it seems as though the church uh, that we've lost our zeal, we've lost our goal, we've lost our vision, we've lost our desire. We want our church to be filled, but no one wants to agonize and pray. We have a prayer meeting. And I'm going to try to be as sweet as I can be about this. We have a prayer meeting. We're supposed to do it at 930. We wait to 945 to give everybody the, the benefit of the doubt. On Sunday mornings. And all of you say you believe in prayer, but you don't believe it enough to show up. Wednesday night, we're not having, we're not preaching on Wednesday night anymore. We have a prayer meeting time. We have a devotion, five or, or ten minutes, unless Joe's here. And then we'll, after having prayer meeting, after having devotion, we meet and pray. But the crowd's gotten smaller and smaller. Second why? Number three. The persistence in prayer. Many of us fail to, to pray as fervently and as agony is what we should. And the reason we do that a lot of times is we, we forget that lost people are, are, are under the authority of Satan. I know you like to think that your lost children belong to you and they're, boy, they're, they're God. But if they know that they're a sinner, if they know that they're a sinner, they're no longer under, they're under the authority of Satan. They become the child of Satan at that time. Okay, if they know that they're a sinner, that they're they're lost, whether they acknowledge it or ever say that they're lost or not, they're lost. And if they die, they're going to hell. Or if Jesus comes, they're going to hell because they they know they're a sinner because of 
of that sinfulness that lies within them. And it's not just with your children, it's with my children, my grandchildren, anybody that ever comes to that place. And it seems as though we, we, we explain that away today and we, we have our, our fictitious thoughts today and we have our, our desires. And we want we want my experience, I could care less about your experience. Your experience don't mount to a hill of beans with me. I don't care about your experience. I didn't have the experience Saul of Tarsus had, did you? I didn't hear a voice and I didn't see a light from heaven. I didn't fall off a horse. But I got lost and I had to get saved. And I had to trust the Lord Jesus to get saved. But, but, but before I'd done that, I was a child of the devil. We forget the lost people are under the authority of Satan. Acts 26 and verse number 18, listen to the prayer right here. He said, to, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Listen, I, what, what, what Paul was saying there is in the Scripture and what the Lord is saying there is that they belong to the devil. They belong to the devil until their eyes are opened and they see the Lord Jesus as being their Savior. They're blinded by Satan. Second Corinthians chapter number four and verse number four. In whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, which is the image of God, should shine unto them. I want you to know uh, they can't see the way of faith until God turns the light on for them. They can't see the way of faith until God flips the switch for them. And listen, there is much like uh, the, the they're they're much like the Jews who today have that veil over their eyes and they can't see. It. And listen, they look looking for a sign or a feeling or something like that. But I want you to know they're bound by Satan. And why should we be praying like that? Why should we be persistent in prayer? Because if we don't pray, if we don't pray for them, if we don't pray for them, who's going to pray for them? Who's going to talk to God on their behalf? If we don't get broken over them, if we don't get our hearts torn to pieces over the lost, who, who, who is going to cry for them? Mark chapter 9 and verse number 29, the Bible said, This kind cometh forth not by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. In other words, you don't turn these things. When somebody said, Just keep preaching, preacher, I will. But why don't you start praying? I'm going to keep preaching if God give me the grace to keep preaching. But that old boy that brought that demonic son to the Lord Jesus those disciples couldn't help him. They had just got through casting out devils when they went on the limited commission, didn't they? They were rejoicing because the, the devils were subject unto them. But they'd done run into a devil here that was bigger than one they had ever seen before. And they questioned and said, Lord, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said this kind here. Comes forth only by, by prayer and fasting. Or fasting and prayer. You see, we uh, we just need to see that that they're bound by the by the devil. Sometimes it takes more than just preaching. Sometimes we're going to suffer a little. Sometimes we're going to be in, in agony a little. 
sometimes we're going to have to deprive ourselves a little. Sometimes we may have to go against our flesh a little. Sometimes we may have to get up while the preaching's going on and run to the altar and, and get in touch with God a little. It's just according to how much you love the lost and how much you're concerned about their soul. It's just according to, to how much you desire for God to move in your life. You see, they're bound by Satan. And see, they're bewildered by Satan. They were, there's many of them that are confused, and they seem in their life, they've asked, they've asked, they've prayed the prayer, they've, they've heard about all that praying that's got to be done, and they've asked, and they've prayed, and nothing's ever happened. You ever heard anybody say that? That's why I'm going to tell you it ain't about a prayer. Brother Troy, he brought devotion, did a good job this morning too, by the way, on, on Romans 10. The first thing for years, all we wanted to do was run to 10, run Romans 10, 9, read those verses and, and say, but, it, but, but he read a scripture there that if you'll listen to it, and how shall they believe on, him, on whom they have not heard that's something that's already happened in other words they're praying he, matter of fact he's talking to Jews there by the way if you want to know the truth about it but he's talking in a, in, in a, in a tense that something has already taken place and when they turn in faith to him the believing's already took place when they turn in faith to him now, that's a different story and I ain't got time to dig in and get all that, but but I'm gonna get it to you. We we're gonna get it here for long. I'm here to tell you they're bewildered. Today, first Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 33. The Bible said, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. There, there, there's young people, there's people today that are so confused about their salvation. You, you ever spend a night in confusion about your soul? You ever spend a night? You, there, there's no need in it. You don't have to do that. I'm, I'm telling you, you don't have to be there. You do that because the devil gets the best. He takes advantage of us at times. You don't. You know whether you're saved or whether you're not. If you'll go, if you'll get down to the brass tacks of the matter, you know how you stand with God. And I know that that confusion sometimes sets in. But God's not the author of that. Their confusion and lack of hope begins to set in, and the thought of no hope for the one that that's doing the praying. What do they need? They need somebody bombarding the throne of God on their behalf. God help them. You see, Satan wants us to quit praying. And as long as the church quits praying, and when the church quits praying, praying, I tell you what happens. Uh, uh, the devil's got the upper hand, uh, and we see the lost folk quit getting saved, uh, and we see the altars quit getting full, uh, and we see any results in the house of God. Uh, uh, we see any results diminish uh, in the house of God. Can I ask you, what's happened in your life? What's happened? You know why Satan wants you to quit praying? Because he don't have any defense against it. When we pray, Satan is defeated, whether we see it or not. If we could see what's taking place around us right now in the spiritual world when we're praying, 
we would be encouraged. I can bank or you can bank on that. Elijah, remember the prayer, the prayer that Elijah prayed when Gehazi, a servant, come in and said, Oh, our enemies surrounded us. And Elijah walked out there and said, God, just open his eyes that he can see. And he opened his eyes and he seen God's holy angels and chariots of fire all around him. When his eyes were opened, you see, if we can only pray. George Mueller prayed for 63 years and eight months for one particular friend. When they stood over George Mueller's body and closed the casket and the preacher that preached his funeral gave the eulogy. That friend that George Mueller prayed for for 63 years and eight months trusted Jesus that day. Being persistent in prayer. Number four, the aggression in prayer. What do you mean aggression? Well, we fight our battles in prayer. First, Second Corinthians chapter number ten and verse number four said, "For the weapons of our warfare are carnal, are not carnal, but mighty, through the pulling down of strongholds." Well, our weapons, we don't we don't take up swords and spears. We, we don't have to take up a hammer or a gun or a rifle. And I know sometimes we want to do that, but, but the weapons of our warfare, they're stronger than that. Leonard Ravenhill said, there is a suffocating indifference in the church to the peril of judgment. There is a suffocating indifference in the church to the peril Y'all understand what he said there? There, there is a complacency and a, and a lack of concern when it comes to judgment on these lost folks. When it comes to judgment on your children and on your grandchildren. If we could for a moment today reach down and pull apart the earth's crust and let you gaze off into hell for one millisecond and close the hole and the gap back up. The revival in this land, there's no telling. If we could see what judgment brings to those that are lost. If we could view for ourselves for one moment what one soul is suffering in hell at this particular time. Then he'd bring the church. He wouldn't just bring the lost to the altar. He'd bring the church to the altar again. It would cause our hearts to break again. But there is a suffocating indifference today. There is an indifference today. Tremendously. When it comes to the church. And you answer that for yourself this morning. Are you indifferent about judgment? Are you indifferent about judgment? Look up here at me. Are you indifferent about judgment? Are you? Do you care much? Are you, are you broken about those that, that you know of as going to hell? Some of you have got children and grandchildren that they're lost. And you know that they're lost. 
and you know that they're not far away from the grave possibly and you know by the life they live that they've never been born again and you, it seems as though maybe that, that we have that indifference in our heart. You tie an elephant to a stake when it's a child, a young one. And because he's little, that stake about that long, about that big around, he can't pull it out of the ground. He will not move. But that same stake, when if he keeps him tied to it all of his life, it keeps him tied in the same place. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying because we've lacked these things of God in our life, we're raising a generation that's going to be just like us and worse. What's it going to take? The aggression in prayer. How many of us have become a lethargic in praying for lost people aggressively? How many of us have become lethargic about that? And number five, there's pleading prayer. The word plead means the art of supporting by argument. Examples is Remember when Abraham went before the Lord? Lord, would you save them if they was 50 righteous? Lord, would you spare them if they was 40 righteous? You see, he kept bringing things before the Lord. Moses, on behalf of Israel, did the same thing. It was, it was basically what an attorney, attorney does when he goes to court before a jury. He argues his case. I'm not telling you you argue with God, but, but it worked in the old Bible that they would plead their case before the Lord and God would answer their prayer. Isaiah 41 verse 21 says this. You ought to highlight this. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, saith the king of Jacob. Huh. For what reason, God, won't you... Please say, God, you gave your son to die for my child. And God, I've trusted. God, would you please, because you gave him to die for my child. God, please, please deal with my child. God, please don't let your son die in vain when it comes to my child. God, please don't allow your, when it comes to my grandchildren. God, please, God, don't let... My, cheer, my grandchildren cause your son to die in vain. Plead the purpose of God for man. What do you mean by that, preacher? Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. God, you said you came to seek and to save that which is lost. And they're lost, God. And they need a Savior. And God, you said you came your son came to seek and to save them. God, now, save them. Plead the cause, the purpose of God for man. Plead the promise of God. John 3, 16. For whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've heard people make fun of people praying and quoting scripture when they pray. Then they're trying to remind God of scripture. You know what? If there's anything that honors God, it's his word. 
And if there's anything God's going to honor, it's going to be his word. So it ain't going to hurt you one bit to quote scripture to God. It ain't going to hurt one thing to tell God you know what his Bible says. God, you saved him because you told us this. God, you told us that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. Plead the promise of God and plead the promises and performances before God. God, you saved Nineveh, that wicked city. God, they were so wicked and you saved God, you saved that maniac of Gadara. He was full of devils. God, you saved him. God, that old wicked Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. God, you saved him. Would you please, God, save my child? Number six, look at the motive of praying. John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Here's what I'm thinking, what I believe, and I believe what the Scripture foretells is this. Prayer needs to be made for the glory of God. It's not for family pride. As much as we have it, and I don't want none of my, I, I got two grandbabies now that's, that never has been saved. I don't think neither one of them has reached the age of accountability, but I don't think it's far one for one of them anyway. I don't want to see them turn the Lord away one second. And I've got two more that say they're saved, and, and I, I believe they are, but it's not going to stop me from praying for them. Saying, God, family's not saved. Please save my baby girl. God, if May's, I believe the fruit that he bears, I believe it testifies that he knows the Lord. But God, if he's not saved, will you please, please, will you deal with him? God, and I don't want to see my family circle broken, but I can't pray just because of my family circle. I don't want my child to have to go to hell. But the Bible said in James 4 and 3, says, you ask and you receive not because you ask amiss. It may consume it upon, notice this next word, consume it upon what? Your lust. God, for my benefit. You see, it wasn't me that died for him, but Jesus. It wasn't me that hung on the cross and got nails driven in my hands and, 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 and opened up my back for viewing. But it was Jesus. Brother Mike, if there's any reason we ought to want to see our family saved and our loved ones saved, it's because of what Jesus did. What he paid. Oh, what a debt he paid. Oh, what a price he paid. Oh, what he gave for us that we could have life, that our children could be saved. Oh, would it not been for the blood of the Lord? Or had it not been the Lord, to what the psalmist said? Oh, had it not been the Lord? I'm telling you today, we'd all be in foul shape. We'd all be in trouble. 
He's worthy of every bit of our praise. What we need to do today is to remember that we pray in the right way in the court of law. An attorney can often object to something that they feel is outside the bonds of legality. And I wonder today if the devil don't do the same thing when we're praying things to heap it upon our lust. Our prayers will go unanswered when we have the wrong motives. Then lastly, and I'm done, our prayers go unanswered today because there's a lack of unity in prayer. Praying in unity usually has the most immediate results. You ever seen a magnifying glass? You ever took one out? I remember when I was a boy, my Papa Bond, one of the first things, he, I was about four years old, and he took me outside and he had a magnifying glass, what he read with have glasses. He read, had a magnifying glass. And he had a walking stick. He'd cut that walking stick out, out of the woods and he'd, he'd take and put some more, I don't know what it was, but he'd turned it brown, you know. He'd stained it with something. And, uh, and we took that thing outside one day and sat down in the yard. He had a chair. He sat down there and he took that, that magnifying glass and he sat there. And he held that glass over that stick few seconds that stick started burning and he spelled his name wrote his name on that walking stick with a magnifying glass and the sun's rays you see what that sun does what that that magnifying glass does it gathers those rays of the sun and it gets them down there and it brings them down into one place it brings brings them all together it unifies all the rays of the sun. And it gathers it together and brings it into one place. Let me tell you what the unit, what, what prayer does in unity. I believe this. I believe the reason you can see immediate results when a church prays together in unity is because it gathers them together and it brings them down and it makes more power. Those rays at one time, the, the, one, one sun ray without the help of that magnifying glass, it wouldn't burn that stick. But when you brought them all together, well, there was a difference made right there. When it, that magnifying glass gathered them all together and, and it enhanced those sun rays and it, it hit that walking stick and, and it began to write his name on there. One couldn't do it, but many could. Y'all will get that maybe when you get home this evening. William Carey, I've told y'all this before. This, this story here always blesses my soul. William Carey's son. Y'all know who William Carey was, the great Baptist missionary. William Carey had a son named Jabez Carey. Jabez had grown, gotten older, and never had trusted the Lord. During the Baptist Mission Society annual meeting one year, Dr. Ryland was the moderator of the group, of the associational group there. And being moved of God during the prayer that day stood and he encouraged the entire assembly and made a request to pray for Jabez Carey at that time. He said that we're going to spend the next 30 minutes in our assembly doing nothing but praying and calling Jabez Carey's name to the Lord. And he, he called the time at 147 on this Tuesday morning.
Tuesday evening. 1.47 on this Tuesday evening, we will adjourn to pray. And said those men in that place began to slide off their pews, make their way to the front. Some stayed at there, and they prayed. About three or 400, 500 men prayed. We don't know anything about it, but a few, about two weeks later, Jabez had moved off to a different place in, in England, and, and about two weeks later, a letter came into the, into the, uh, uh, William Carey's home and he opened the letter up and it was from Jabez Carey, Brother Mike and, and Jabez Carey had wrote a letter to his daddy saying, Daddy, uh, at approximately 2 p.m. on this Tuesday of uh, so-and-so day of 18-something other, uh, Daddy, on my knees, I, I fell under conviction, such heavenly conviction that I fell to the ground and I trusted Jesus as my Savior, Daddy. I don't know why, but, but God uh, saved me, Daddy. You say, oh, preacher, that's all made up. According to your faith, be it unto you. On January the 14th of 1856, David Livingston was in Africa. Dr. Livingston, I presume. You know, you know Dr. Livingston. They say he was a great explorer. Society doesn't tell you today he was a great missionary. He went to Africa because he was concerned about the souls of those people. He lived in the bush. He lived with them. He loved Africa so much that they took his body back to, to England when he died, but he told them to cut his heart out and leave it in Africa. Somewhere in Africa, David Livingston's heart's buried to this day because of his love. But, but the story goes this way that he had been trying to deal with this particular tribe in Africa. They were savages. And he had been trying to deal, and they would reject him and had threatened him and everything. And finally, there, his, his, prog his pr pr progression had offended them desperately. And, and the chief had declared that on this day, on, on January the 14th, we're going to kill those Englishmen. They had guards at the camp that night, two or three guards around the camp, and they said they sat in the tents to the wee hours, and they knew it. It was going when those savages made a promise, they would keep their promise. Doctor Livingston said that uh, that uh, you know that 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 he, he he felt like they were going to come try to kill him. He said, but 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 fear was there, but but I took comfort in in knowing that God would never leave me. He stayed awake all night while awaiting the attack that never happened. Eventually, he won the chief to the Lord. The chief got born again. While talking to the chief about January the 14th of 1856, he asked him, Why did you not attack me that night? The chief responded, Pastor Livingston, that night there were 47 men with swords drawn standing around your camp. We're not that big of fools. <laughs> Dr. Livingston said, 47 men? You don't have 47 men here. 
few years later, he went back to England on furlough to Scotland, matter of fact. He'd go before the churches and he'd tell the churches of his experiences. And he told this particular church about the experience that happened on that night. And after the services, there came a man to him and met him with his prayer journal in hand. And he opened his prayer journal up and he said, Dr. Livingston, did you say it was January the 14th of 1856, sir? He said, yes, sir, that's when it was. And he said, Dr. Livingston, he said the tears began to flow down the old boy's face. He said, Dr. Livingston, can I tell you that on January the 14th of 1856, here at our church, there were 47 men gathered praying specifically for you that night. Dr. Livingston, we were the ones guarding your tent with swords drawn. I'm telling you folks, what I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm telling you today is we've forgotten about our most powerful weapon. Unity is powerful. How many of you be willing to pray for someone else? I, I remember times, brother. I, I'm okay. I'm just gonna be honest, and I, I, I'm getting too old to run, so I ain't gonna run. But there were times when, when, when we'd see men pray together around here. What's happened, y'all? And I'm even gonna say this, ladies, y'all, y'all slacked off a good bit. What's happened? Preacher, why ain't people getting saved? Why ain't we praying? Preacher, you're in the flesh, you know? I dare say we all are. Because the important things we've let slip by. We expect God to do it without us, and He can. But what good are we if we're not going to be used for him? Unity is powerful. Unity is rare. And unity is intercession. And intercession is very rare. You know what I believe? I believe Satan inhabits pride. Just like God inhabits praise. I need to say that louder. I believe Satan inhabits pride just like God inhabits praise. James 4.16, he said, For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. I wonder today, is God answering your prayer? prideful. Man, just ain't good enough. Are you too prideful? 
how good and how pleasant it is when brethren can dwell together in unity. Better put away the excuses keeping you off the altar because God may take it from you. I don't know if you want that or not. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of letting.